0: Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome. Thanks for stopping by. Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us, please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay Bruce, roll it. Remember back in the day how our favorite TV sitcoms would often spend an entire episode each season looking back at scenes from previous shows? It was probably a way to stretch the budget a bit, maybe to get some extra value without having to pay the actors to be on set for another full shoot. Sometimes those clip shows were a lot of fun, sometimes, well, not so much. I guess it came down to how good the show was and how well they set up the premise, maybe the excuse for the flashbacks. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and for this very special edition of the True Tunes Podcast, my co-producer Bruce A. Braun and I have compiled this best-of collection, carefully selecting some of the moments that have helped us zero in on what has become our mission, to listen to better music and listen to music better even the theme that we've arrived at only emerged about halfway into this journey and going back through these interactions I've been learning a few things about myself, about music and about the challenges and opportunities we all face. But this isn't the end of a season, I don't know if we'll ever break this show up into seasons but it seemed like a good idea to look back for a bit, take stock and reflect. So. If you're new to all of this, hopefully these snippets will inspire you to find the full conversations and dig in. I know that long-form conversations can often be a challenge for people these days, but if you've been with us all along and you've already heard the full-length episodes, I hope that hearing these short clips gathered in this new context will reveal something new for you like they have for me. And if you've been looking for an accessible way to invite your friends into this conversation, well, here you go. And we do have a grand vision here, to gather together, virtually for now, but ultimately, hopefully, in some way, in person as well. A diverse tribe of spiritually minded listeners who are as passionate about the idea of music that means something as we are to that end, I would also deeply and profoundly appreciate it if you would subscribe to the email list at TrueTunes.com, like our page on Facebook at Now, and consider supporting our brand new Patreon program. We just launched this new endeavor as a way to raise some funds to help this show thrive. You can support us at any amount you choose and patrons will receive various special rewards including exclusive backstage content, offers for special merch, invites to exclusive online meetups one-on-one time with yours truly, and more. You can find the link at truetunes.com or go to patreon.com slash truetunes. Now on with the show. After years, actually over a decade, of planning and thinking and truly dawdling, the True Tunes podcast finally launched with our pilot episode in July of 2019. That show featured a montage of clips from various interviews I had in the can, so to speak, as well as an excerpt from an in-studio conversation I had with Phil Keggy and Rex Paul around the release of their stunning collaborative project, Illumination. The social media construct that has evolved around all this, with like buttons and yeah. this ch- cheap interaction, can become so debilitating to people because uh, it's it's a f- it's a fake, and yes. so. S- Young artists can be chasing likes and not actually engaging with that's a good point um, with people, and yes. then they get depressed, they get discouraged. Right. Their numbers aren't actually there, or what have you, and they're they're chasing yeah. the wrong thing. It's vapors, yeah. and so they're not creating work that's actually going to sustain anybody, yes. let alone themselves, or, or and it's not going to create anything of value.
1: It's sometimes more. Uh, it's important not to read the reviews of the, yeah. of your work. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, But you know, everyone's got a different flavor that they prefer in their tea. So, and the thing is, we have to do it uh, as unto the Lord and we have to please ourselves musically Mm -hmm. because there's just too much out there. Uh, The tastes of people are so varied. It's more enjoyable to be creative rather than analyze the process and what the reaction will be or the response will be.
2: I would say... Exchange your social interaction with real interaction as a musician. Mm-hmm. Spend less time online and, real, and more time with a guy in the room with a guitar or whatever, and you'll find that, that your mental health and your, and your soul health will get better and your music will get better.
0: I remember talking with Phil about the show's concept. He and many prospective guests asked what it was going to be about. I knew this wasn't going to be specifically a spiritual formation or music biz show and this show would not simply be a trip down CCM's memory lane. Then what? Well, the truth is, I wasn't sure. But, as I surveyed the cultural landscape, riddled with hostility and discord and fear, I increasingly sensed that one thing too few of us remembered how to do in these social media days, myself included, was to participate in extended conversations where the primary goal of listening and learning instead of setting out to promote and defend a position. While I appreciate that there are people who look to me as some kind of teacher, I still look to others to teach me. I was making time, personally, to spend with my mentors and to seek out wisdom from people smarter than I, some of them quite a bit younger, I might add, and I started to realize, with the help of some encouragement from some good friends, that welcoming others into that journey modeling the teachability and openness I was trying to cultivate in myself might be a good place to start with this podcast. It also seemed clear that both veteran artists like Phil Keggy and young artists just getting started could use help connecting with their tribe, real listeners who valued their work in this needle-in-a-haystack digital world. I started to feel an urgency to just do something, even if it involved some on-the-job learning, when the True Tunes name and web domain came back into my control thanks to my friend Elliot Cunningham, it seemed the time had truly come. Fortunately, my longtime friend and confidant Bruce Brown offered to help produce the show and my friend Craig Hansen hooked me up with a mic, a preamp and some other necessary gear so my last excuses for procrastination were gone. It was time to just go for it, so that's what we did. We started with that Phil Keggy conversation and rolled into other conversations with NF producer Tommy Prophet, indie artist and songwriter Krista Wells, veteran rocker, pastor, pioneer, and bluesman Glenn Kaiser, music journalist and indie artist Jeff Elbell, who also turned the tables and interviewed me. Along the way, I also talked with Michael McDermott, Daniel Smith, award-winning producer Ian Fitchuk, Liz Vice, Michael Gunger, Sandra McCracken, Don and Laurie Chaffer of Waterdeep, acclaimed new artist Ella Mine, and Americana legend Buddy Miller. We introduced you to the cast of the Electric Jesus film and its director, Chris White. Mark Bird of Hammock took us deeply into his musical and personal history for a sometimes harrowing look at addiction and recovery. And in our best received episode to date, we unveiled a portion of a long lost conversation I had with Jesus Rock pioneer, Larry Norman, alongside a new interview with his son, Mike. If you listen closely, you'll also hear some new music that several of these guests have released since we spoke. And as always, the full list and links can be found on the show notes page at TrueTunes.com.
3: Sunshine is a fine wine, and the heart is full and beautiful. And I, not every soul on earth knows the cloudless sky. I said to myself, don't you dare ever think what you see will always be. As it is even now in the of 20, you still got more than plenty
0: while there are dozens probably hundreds of artists who have influenced me my wife michelle jokes that i probably have 100 albums in my top 10 of all time there are 3 i have long cited as primary reference points since i was very young Charlie Peacock, Glenn Kaiser, and Steve Taylor, each not only influenced me from afar, as they did thousands of others, but they took time with me when I was very young, impressionable, and always pushing my way backstage, and spoke into my life creatively, professionally, spiritually, and personally. I determined early on that although I would certainly be casting a wide net when it came to guests on this show, one of the first things I wanted to do was introduce you all to some of the people who formed me. I was so happy that Charlie agreed to sit down for an interview in his home for the first full-length episode of the podcast.
3: What's sustainable are uh, ideas that live across the centuries. It's not sustainable to, to come up with a great guitar riff, or you know, or to gain facility on an instrument, uh, or to write 13 really good songs. You know, all those things can be good in and of themselves, but they're not. They're not the, the what will sustain you. So it's like the idea that that you can run a song up the charts right at at terrestrial radio or you could have a big streaming song and then you could just vanish right and I've never seen what I do that way I mean I'll be the first to admit that I thought I wouldn't be legitimate unless I had hits uh, pop hits and so I had pop hits and now I can I considered myself to be legitimate, right? right? That's that's foolishness, but that's that's just the way I was wired when I when I was younger. But as I matured, I saw sustainability about the kind of directly linked to the kind of person I was becoming, um, and that I was growing musically uh, because that's all I did, and. Uh, the way I thought about music required that I was always in an investigative mode. I was always in a mode of discovery, I was always in a mode of curiosity. So my work was never done, right? So that meant I would keep growing that way as well. But if we were to like dissect my career and say, okay, you know, you, you got married at 18, You've been playing professionally since you were 14. You're 62 years old. You know, you've, I've done it, practically every job you could possibly have in music, right? How did that happen? You know, and if I had to break it down, and explain it to you, I would say it was so much more about the things that you can't even imagine than it was about the music. It was, it was so much about calling, um, about a supernatural equipping that had nothing to do with me. It's so much about um, wisdom that had nothing to do with me, uh, discernment that had nothing to do with me. All these things, graces, gifts, of which then, having been given them, then having the responsibility to grow them and to use them wisely.
4: Babylon, Babylon oh, Babylon, oh, Babylon Babylon, Babylon Wake up from your sleep
0: I got with Glenn Kaiser when the True Tunes Gang reunited in Aurora, Illinois back in July of 2019 for our 30 year class reunion. You as a mentor now talking to young artists that have a, a faith burden, but also want to speak to social issues. They want to connect and, and be protest artists. They want to uh, impact and, and affect social change. What do you have to say to that next generation? How can they do this effectively and, and keep wind in their sails? <laughs>
4: Quit thinking of your audience as your audience. They're either brothers and sisters in Christ or they're your potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Start with what Jesus said. There's some negative stuff in in the four Gospels attributed to Jesus. So, about what, you know, eternal life and not everybody's going to get it. It's about influence. And it's about caring enough that the person you're with is the most important person right here, right now in your life. What do they need? And either I can help you or I can network you with somebody that can. And if that's your heart and that's your perspective, and you're not gonna agree on everything. Politically, doctrinally, theologically, methodology, man, that's the biggest church splitter in the world is, you know, we never did it this way before, or we have to do it this way. and Separating people left, right and center over there, choices their desires you know music same thing you can get in a slot and demand other people get in that slot with you stylistically or what have you you know because it's where you're comfortable and it's what you like but I think we have to think I'm not simply a musician who's facing a crowd it was never about the money and it it can't be what is that all about is that commitment to God and the people? No, it isn't, it's a commit to yourself. And I, and I think it's, it's the fact that artists sometimes get so myopic, so focused, this is my desire, my goal. It was about bringing people together who often felt very, very unappreciated, unloved, unwelcome because of their subculture and their culture. I have friends that are so far right I mean, so far right. There's no way we agree on everything. I have friends that are so far left, we're never gonna agree on some things, right? And these people, like, sometimes they think, are you, are you nuts? How come you, why do you even give them the time of day? They're, they're idiots, they're bums. Well, they're idiots and bums Jesus loves and died for. They're human beings. That's somebody's son, daughter. I see him every day behind bars. That's a human being with a name. You don't know how they got there. You don't know the backstory, and part of your empathy for artists, Dave Bunker's empathy for artists, my empathy for human beings, many of whom are, are, are artists, musicians, and otherwise. I mean, isn't that really what this is all about? Why are we on this stinking planet to impress people with our abilities? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's not why I'm breathing. We <laughs>
0: Steve Taylor, who now heads up the film department at Lipscomb University in Nashville, invited me to his office on campus earlier this year. We mostly talked about the challenges of filmmaking and telling great stories from a Christian perspective without devolving into triteness or propaganda. If I had any idea that he and his old bandmates were about to launch a massively successful Kickstarter campaign to release a long-lost live Chagall Guevara album, as well as to reissue that band's one and only album, a masterpiece, if you ask me, on vinyl, well, believe me, we would have talked about that too. I guess I'll just have to have him back on the show. But here's a bit from my chat with the Bannerman himself. You were studying film in college and you ended up being a Christian musician for a number of years. So how did you get so sidetracked and and did you intend to do Christian music? And did you know what you were getting yourself into when when that happened?
5: Yeah. So uh, I was studying actually music was my major and filmmaking was kind of like a minor. They didn't have a full fledged department, but I took all the classes. When I graduated I was equally interested in music and film, it's just that uh, I figured it would be easier to be in a band in my 20s and a filmmaker in my 50s than the reverse. And uh, at that point, Christian music was enough of a thing that, uh, you know, I was was certainly aware of it, um, but I, I wasn't particularly interested in becoming a Christian artist. Uh, i was making demos at the time and you know even that cost a lot of money back then but i was like a, a janitor and so i was saving my money to make demos and one day in boulder after classes i went to get my hair cut my barber was always asking what was up, I said, well, you know, I've been making some music. He said, oh, really, you know, can I hear it? And I said, well, yeah, if you want to. I mean, you're happy to have anybody listen at that point. So I gave him a cassette, and he really liked it. And he said, I got this friend who's a publisher who just got tired of the scene in L.A. and just moved to Boulder to start a bookstore. Can I give it to him? And I said, sure. So we gave it to him, and he said, oh, my friend really likes it. And he had been uh, at Warner Brothers Publishing so uh he said he'd be happy to introduce you to some of his friends if you wanted to go out to l.a and make a trip sure why not so i went out to l.a with my tapes and he had set up like meetings with like warner brothers and arista and maybe another label and to a person they all said we really like this music it was you know kind of a punk new wave hybrid but they said the the lyrics are just like they're kind of Kind of Christian, but they don't like they. they well, you know, I just we just don't think there's a, a market for this, and so I thought, well, if you know, if it's the lyric content that was the problem, I maybe I should talk to Christian labels. So uh, I had another friend who set up a meeting with uh, Word and with Sparrow, and I've met with both of them, got them the tapes, and I You know, this sounds like a joke. It really wasn't. Their response was, uh, we don't really like this music, and your lyrics would offend our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But eventually, uh, this same friend got me on at the Christian Music uh, Seminar in Estes Park that happened every summer, and he got me a two-song slot. I put a band together. Uh, Billy Ray Hearn, the head of Sparrow, was in the audience. I'm not totally sure that he got it, but the audience, which was made up of a lot of plants that my friends made sure when Steve goes on, cheer really loudly. Uh, he liked that, he responded to that, and, and he just he literally met me at the side of the stage and said, I wanna do a deal. So that's how I got signed. Did you worry at all about getting on that bus? Oh man, well for one, I was just thrilled that anybody cared, and second, um, I think I left LA feeling like I'm going to be fortunate if anybody wants to do this.
0: At what point did you start to feel like you had been hoodwinked, or somehow were not where you really wanted to be creatively? Well,
5: I got no one to blame but myself because uh, I, I don't, I don't really. I, I, I shouldn't say I don't have any regrets. I there are songs on every album that I regret recording, but that's mostly because I don't think they're very good songs. But um, Sparrow, as an example, gave me absolute creative control over everything. They never said this song and not this song. I just assume that's how every artist was treated. So uh, so I got, I, I had great support from the Christian labels I was on, and, and had really, for the most part, really good experiences. It just, at, at, after the, uh, I predict 1990 album. It just was obvious that this was not going where I wanted it to go. In some ways, at that point, Christian music labels were becoming more conservative, and I was getting more and more frustrated at the at the uh, the system. Not necessarily at my own record label, just at the system itself.
0: While Eddie DeGarmo had a massive influence on me with his band DeGarmo & Key, especially through their second album, Straight On which I explored on episode three's jukebox feature. I really didn't get to know him personally until well into my thirties. After years of working on the fringes of the industry, in fact, Eddie hired me to work on his creative team at Capital CMG Publishing. I spent nearly a decade working with him there and then helped him with his book, Rebel For God. So it was great to have someone with a dual perspective of being both a pioneer in the trenches of Jesus music and at some of the highest levels of the music industry on the show.
6: I think that when, when God has saved us and brought us into His Kingdom, He's asked us to expand His Kingdom. And most times when people would ask Jesus what the Kingdom of God was like, He, he just going kind to of tell a story about an idea, about a, a guy doing the wrong thing and a guy doing the right thing. So I, I think the way we build the Kingdom of God, if we're a believer, is just as we go, we do the right thing. I actually remember that when we would play, I would pray, you know, God don't let me get absorbed in the music, let me think about you. I never believed that it could be the same channel. If I was playing a lead solo and I got too lost in my notes, you know, somehow I was less spiritual, if you will, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is true anymore, but I did when I was a young believer. You know, we were very cognizant in what we felt like that we were about. What we felt like we were about was really a simple statement. Is that we just grew up playing rock music and so we wrote rock songs to share our faith. It was kind of really that simple. Didn't even know really if there was an audience that would enjoy it per se, but we thought maybe there would be. And early days, as you know, we tried playing the same places that we played with our mainstream band and we just played our new songs. And sometimes, you know, we would say something about the gospel in between the songs and it just never went too well. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? you'd be at some dance or club or fraternity party or something. And right. it, it was just, you know, it was, it's kind of like playing basketball in, in, in the Sunday morning service. It just didn't fit. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know what I mean? We'll be right back after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We're back with this cold storage episode from the True Tunes podcast.
7: This is for you, baby.
0: While we're talking about personal influences, one of the biggest in my life has definitely been Buddy Miller. You can hear us get down to the nitty-gritty on the full episode, but suffice it to say that even though I count him as a friend, I still don't take the privilege of having a legend like him spend time with us on this show for granted. What an honor. So you w- you just got woven into the community here yeah,
8: so quickly. And then it would be around the time my first record came out, I think it was right at the same time I started playing with Amy Lou and she's so, so gracious and she let me open every show and she said, as long, you know, you can open every show you ever want to with me. And I did and she would come out every night and sing with me, uh, which kind of, get, you know, validated me. Oh yeah. Me. And she was, it would come to all my gigs in town and then she had Julie and me be her band for a little while. It was just the three of us would mm-hmm. play. And Emmy was so supportive, and people heard the first record of mine and and Julie's, and I'd get some production um, offers, and I just like working on things, so, yeah. And the thing that I've
0: always taken away that, that I would love for, especially students listening to this, to hear about is your spirit of serving other people and investing in them and how that has come back to then open up doors for you it just i th- just think
8: we're all in this thing together you know if i get an opportunity and it, it's just and it, it just he, how it happened that i met robert plant he just happened to come to an emmy lou harris gig in dublin and i heard he was there i i, I must have had an okay night because <laughs> um uh, but I heard he was hanging out. This was in Dublin, where they have a pub, you know, in the in the front of the theater. A lot of right. so he was hanging out there, and I went to meet him afterwards. Just thought because I saw his first, you know, Led Zeppelin's first show at the Fillmore, from like the third row.
0: Oh my gosh!
8: Yeah. So I went and talked to Robert, and we just talked about music, and he he, he took my number, and years later I got a call for that. Uh, many years later for the uh, Robert and Allison tour, and then we worked after that but yeah robert it's just uh, working with him working with anybody i'm um, i don't i, I just think i uh, have a mindset of kind of we're all in this we're in this together mm-hmm. and we're creating something new um and i try to just see through their eyes hear through their ears what they're hearing and you know we can, and i have to have a common ground with somebody that i'm mm-hmm. working with them we sure had a lot of common ground from the blues and and uh, the psychedelic music that I, I, he is so drawn to.
0: Now here's the thing. If you haven't figured this out, I don't just respect my elders, I revere them. I will hopefully never tire of gleaning wisdom from my forebears, And we will always make time here on the show to introduce or reintroduce you to them. But I want this conversation to include fresh, young voices as well. Though we have a long way to go, we got off to a good start this last year. Ooh. It was fun to hear from several listeners that their first introduction to Liz Weiss was here on the True Tunes podcast, or maybe they had been hearing her songs on our weekly Spotify mixtape for a while, but had no idea who she was. I've been a fan for years, and Liz and I have spent time together enough times that I knew she'd have some important things to say to us. Though our connection dropped around a dozen times during our call, we persisted and she delivered.
9: If you are raised to see people that look like you always in the hood, always oppressed, always in the news about some crime, you're either a criminal or you're a victim. Why would I ever think I have anything to offer? Something has shifted in me where I'm so tired of people saying, well, justice will take place when Jesus comes back or we can enjoy that thing when we're in heaven or we can truly rest when we're in heaven. And I'm like, I'm so exhausted. I would rather die now and get that rest than wait until I'm 80 years old, because that sounds awful. I have to wait. And it doesn't even, it's not even the gospel, Jesus healing people. Jesus engaging with people, he was showing that the kingdom is now and greater things than these you will do in my name. I still don't know what that means, <laughs> but from the stage, I have seen people black, and white, yellow, and brown, gay, and straight, atheists, and prescribing to some faith in one space with their arms wrapped around each other, singing lyrics that they attach their own story to that is heaven on earth and that's when i feel like the lord is saying these are my people too this is nothing new to me like i've known about this since i was a child i have white aunts and uncles like my my aunt who's my mom's oldest sister had to get permission from the church to marry my white uncle and my grandmother's brother, my uncle Willie, would get yells and threats because his wife, Rosemary, passed as a white woman. And so they would say, what are you doing with that Negro? Or whatever they would say to her. So these stories aren't new. It is generational trauma. It is generational education that your skin color is your portion and your oppression for the rest of your life. If it feels gross to acknowledge this racism, imagine centuries of daily encounters and reminders that you'll never be safe. That is my answer. Talk to other white people, bring it up. Because to me, when a white person is sinking, seeking my thoughts, I feel like I'm taking the noose off of my neck and saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You have to see me hanging. That's what it feels like. And my other thought is, My oppression is your oppression because if people only took what they needed, then everyone would have something. If people loved in the same way that they want to be loved, then man, we probably wouldn't have anxiety or depression, burnout because we wouldn't ever say you can rest when you die.
10: You are not your past You are not A victim
9: You are not What you were told You are not
0: turns out Krista Wells actually hung out at the old True Tunes storefront in Wheaton when she was a kid. I didn't know her then, but got to know her here in Nashville as one of the most interesting songwriters and indie artists around. I knew that I wanted this show to have actionable, relevant info for up and coming artists and songwriters, so Krista was definitely on my short lists of guests to call. We recorded our conversation at my creaky dining room table in my echoey front room just before COVID shut everything down. Right now, if you're talking to artists who are trying to make a way, thinking about maybe they're college students or maybe they're high school students and they really feel like they want to do music mm-hmm. as a career, mm-hmm. um, what does it look like? How do, can you actually make money as an artist without another job?
10: For me, it's all about diversifying. Uh, um, and about employing every means possible to monetize what I've already created. You know, any work that's already been created, what have I not yet done with that? How can I, and there's still plenty I have not done Mm -hmm. because of time limitations mainly, but, And then also my existing skill set. What have I not done with that skill set that I, you know, and teaching is part of that. So I didn't teach. I've played piano since I was a kid, but I didn't teach it until last year, two years ago when I became a single person and needed a little bit more. And I was like, well, I haven't used that yet. And anytime you can do something using your specialty, you're going to make way more money than if you do something that more people are capable of doing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I know I have a. High school, I know a girl in high school who teaches piano on Sunday afternoons to a number of uh, neighborhood kids. And because of that, because she's making 20 some bucks for 30 minutes, she doesn't have to go work at Kroger, you know, and she makes way more money for less hours. Um, And Jess Ray, a few years ago, she's a singer songwriter, but she was trying to improve her skills as a producer. And so it was a help to her and a help to me to say, hey, could you do some demos for me once a month that I'll share with my patrons? And she didn't charge as much, nearly as much as a experienced producer here with Cred would, but um, she was able to charge way more than she would doing some other job. Right. So streaming is a small part of my income. I still make income from my songwriting days, uh, royalties from that, that's helpful. And then Patreon, which we've talked about, has been hugely helpful.
0: Of new voices, my friend Jay Schwartzendruber sent me several messages about an up-and-coming indie artist named Ella Mine earlier this year, and then texted me and called me to make sure I was paying attention. He told me that no, he was not being paid anything to push Ella Mine. He just really knew that I was going to love her music, and that many of the True Tunes mindset would as well. So I listened and. Wow. Ella Mine is a revelation. I could not believe what I was hearing. I reached out through the contact form on her website and asked if she'd like to talk with me for the podcast. I expected she would be too busy, likely fielding requests from major media outlets. But to my surprise and delight, she replied quickly and agreed to the interview and we spoke within days. So here was something completely different. A young, brand new, alternative, progressive artist was introduced to many of you for the very first time on this podcast. Has it occurred to you how interesting it is that you went through your journey of pain and isolation and darkness and then wrote about it just in time for everybody else in the world <laughs> to have to go through this really strange journey of pain and isolation and darkness, and you just happened yes. to have given us kind of a soundtrack. Have you Have you oh, had man, any... That's any thoughts about how th- these ideas resonate with what's going on?
11: In my writing I was fueled by my personal experience, but I I knew from the beginning it's not about, it's not the album is not about my experience. Um, I could I could access the right feelings and the right words because of my experience, but truly the point of the record is that kind of idea of, of after like believing in something or, or really giving ourselves to something that we think is good and is going to be good and putting ourselves out there whether it's pursuing something that we believe in or believing in something in itself and then are are really devastated by having put ourselves out there, how can we do it again? And I think I think that is a question that everybody is dealing with in some way or another right now especially the crazy human ability to be really hurt and then to get up and do the same thing or put yourself in the same position again is amazing and the question in the album is kind of how how why why do we do that how can we do that should we do that (laughs) you know um so yeah i I totally see what you're saying that I had never thought of it as a soundtrack to to this year, but that's that's great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Before we move on from this Ella clip, I so wish I had publicly thanked Jay for turning me on to her. He loved the episode and promoted it far and wide. But we lost Jay suddenly a month later. I'm still shocked the loss. Jay was a beam of light in this world and Ella's record has been one of several that has helped me process his loss. So here's to Jay, always and forever, a member of the tribe.
12: Down again, I got back to my feet before they counted 10. I was burned out and busted from my rambling I'm bitching about all the things that could have been I was still drinking then here I am counting all the ways that I screwed up again beaten and battered from a bitter wind waiting for that ship never coming
0: I was beyond excited to have one of my all-time favorite songwriters and artists and another example of an indie making at work in this new version of the music industry, Michael McDermott, join us for the True Tunes 30-year class reunion in the summer of 2019. We recorded a short conversation for the podcast on stage that night, though I'm looking forward to getting him back on the show for a more in-depth conversation soon. I
12: always say my my journey with faith is it's a game of hide and seek, really, and and it's true about that priestly. I would just would have been a, you know, one of the precedents, you know, you read about or is excommunicated, <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, so I knew I wanted to do something. I, I wanted to. I do believe in the idea that we are all in this together, and um, and I think that it's. Um, it's just important. I think what what true to is, is a very important thing, and I, I'm glad you embraced me then because I wasn't ready to say maybe all the things I was supposed to say because well, you, you know right, say, right yeah and and it's weird because like you know certain you know I remember after one show somebody came up and said uh, I'm not sure how I feel about your show and I said yeah why is that and he said well have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior I'm like. It's, it's a it's a personal, you just, you know, is your personal savior. So it's personal, dude. It's none of your business. And then he wouldn't like me unless I was willing to, you know, raise the flag for him, you know. And it's just like, and I don't, that kind of, I don't want to, uh, I didn't want to to pander, you know, in any way. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it was a, obviously I was steeped in it, you know. I mean, I, I you know, it was church going every day and, and I remember I was just, I was, thinking you know of all the cheesy pictures my mom had of Jesus my favorite one a painting not a picture that'd be amazing <laughs> um,
13: <laughs>
12: um, was him laughing you know and I always had, oh, yeah, I, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, like yeah, there's I'm a not, laughing one yeah. I'm just like I'm sure he has a good sense of humor you and as a drug addict drunk. I do want to say there's I in all the different rooms I've talked and and uh, have spirited debate about faith in Jesus or whatever your uh, denomination is. Uh, Crack houses are the best, really, talks about Jesus. I mean, and really, and I say that as a joke, but it's true because they, all those people I would be in those rooms with were all people looking. All people that were trying to fill an internal void with an external force, and that's kind of what we all do. We try to fill this thing, and and it's a search, and I I love people, I love searchers.
7: There is a fountain.
0: Sandra McCracken is rapidly becoming one of the most respected and influential voices in modern worship and hymnody. So it was a real honor to have her join us on the show.
7: There is space in all traditions, all Christian traditions for lament and that we would, um, I think it's good to, to make more of that, you know, make more songs that give us, um, time and that, value lament I remember being a teenager and someone made me a mixtape and there were songs um, like I remember a few songs that were by uh, various artists but I remember the Indigo Girls on some of their early stuff and it was just the two of them and there was such longing and and sort of it was like there was something in that that was not what I was seeing on you know like the praise songs at church and I and I remember hearing it and thinking okay where is this in the church? Like where is this level of emotional honesty? Lament has been with us in the church, but then there are seasons where we just have played up the sunniness so much that I think we've missed out on the formation that we that we are offered in the Christian tradition. The good news is, lament is not a thing that is um, it's a it's a passage. It's like a you move through lament, and on the other side of lament, there is a more authentic joy. So the sunniness right. is like, it it comes um, in a richer way when you're willing to go through the depths.
0: Do you feel uh, kind of along those same lines that worship music or music as worship and therefore songwriters who call, are feeling called into that space have a role to play in this moment culturally as injustices have been revealed uh, on a deeper level between uh, racial injustice, mm-hmm. uh, financial injustice. Do you think that worship music, congregational worship music and therefore songwriters have a, a role to play in speaking into this moment?
7: I think when I get close up to stuff that is so systemic and so um, you just can't put your arms around it. and so my default is I guess going back to these songs of lament and in the lament that that there would be active listening that we that I would be able to be still and listen and pay attention because if we go forward too quickly trying to write the songs about justice and trying to like move right into the middle of those chaotic spaces I think we miss out on self reflection that is essential to songs that would that would go forward and really be hospitable to everybody, right? So I don't know how to do that. I don't know that you can have songs that are hospitable to everybody. I don't know if that's our job, but I do right. think listening is our job and self-reflection and confession and humility is the way it is the way of the cross, and it's also not new, right? Like, this is a this is a heated moment, but oppression is not new. It's hard to even want to talk in that space. I think I just, I just want to, like, have silence in it and just to listen to um, whoever needs to speak, you know? And it's probably not me, because we need that renewal. We need to be broken open um, that it would be fragrant again, that we would be fragrant to each other. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. Welcome back to the
11: True Tunes Podcast.
0: My conversation with Michael Gunger was certainly well, fun doesn't quite capture it all. The release of his latest project under the new creative moniker Weiwoo gave us plenty to talk about. So much, in fact, that we spread it over two episodes. Michael's a deep thinker and a man without borders, that much is certain. I think that the power
14: of what a musician does in some way is it's it's different than almost everything else in society. Everything else in society almost like you're selling a product you're taking you're doing medicine there's always something else like we're trying to get to something else music has nothing to do with that music is about this moment like listen to it and enjoy it now that's art right that's like it calls you into this moment and if we're always chasing something else i think we lose i think any musician that is amazing there's something about them if you they are in it for it, like primarily. It's not that, you know, they didn't also appreciate the perks of being a cool musician or whatever, but a true artist, somebody that loves their craft would do it regardless if there were any perks. And so what I would tell any young artist is like, love what you do, love what you make. Like, don't don't put out something that you don't love, spend plenty of time You're going to make most of the stuff you make, especially early on, you're not going to love. I think the more that you love it, the better chance you have of somebody else loving it anyway. Um, that's why, that's why I, when I say, I I don't know how to make somebody else embody this other than if I embody it, I assume other people will be able to, (laughs) somebody else will be able to, I'm not Mm -hmm. like a different species. Um, you know if this sound makes me feel that in my belly like that somebody some other belly's probably going to feel that too um if that word elicits that emotion for me it's probably somebody else too um so like feeling it yourself and loving what you're doing and working on the craft and for its own sake that's one of the, just the beautiful things about music that makes it so unique and so powerful and I, I don't see it as just a, like while I totally I agree that it can soften the heart and open up for other ideas and larger things to be planted to me it's even more powerful than that it's not just a, a pre- preparatory thing for something else to happen it is the thing it is the experience of this mo- it is the experience of your life in a richer way like when you uh, there's a reason we put music to movies there's a reason we put We sing happy birthday and have music at weddings and funerals and everything important because we score these moments of our lives when we include music, it like deepens our experience of it. It makes it come alive in a different way. Music helps the moment that you're experiencing glimmer and shine with magic and glory. And so that's the power of the musicians. You get to like, uh, you get to step out of that normal, like rat race of, it's like, you actually get to invite people into their lives in a deeper way, into their spirituality, in a deeper way, into their relationships, into their the events of their life in a, in a deeper way. And so, um, as you love it, as you experience it yourself and you make the music that makes you come alive, um, the more, the more effective I think you'll be for other people too.
11: Forever that was for sure.
0: We also went with two parts for our wide-ranging conversation with Don and Lori Chaffer of Waterdeep tell you the truth, I could have gone longer. Fortunately, each time Bruce and I finish an episode, we tend to say something like, I think this is our best yet. The Chaffers are just so thoughtful, funny, and warm, though, that it didn't take much on our part to craft this conversation into something that I believe has far-reaching value for all kinds of people. Did you decide ahead of time that you needed to be in Christian music, or how did that happen? It paid better. Oh, I mean, ultimately, I think... That's
15: a little bit cynical. Uh, it did pay better, and that was not nothing. Youth groups could pay more than bars could. 50 bucks and all the beer you can drink versus 500 for a 100-person youth group, right? It's like, okay, and then then 500 becomes 1,000, and 1,200, and 1,500. It was like you go up that Christian ladder, and it paid really well comparatively.
16: I remember we would have debates, should we play more bars? And I think a, a number of people in the band including ourselves we're like that would be really hard i don't know how many nights a week we could do that and feel uh, i don't know i, I think we, we weren't
15: spiritually hardy enough or something i think like we that, weren't
16: I, I think we thought we weren't and we were and we were just a fragile you but, know kind of protective uh, fundamentalist we were kind of in a fundamentalist phase of for our lives
15: sure. what i would say is that. We had a distinct impression because of overt statements that music wasn't really a, quote, legitimate calling, wasn't Mm. one of the fivefold ministries. (laughs) Which wasn't
16: legit unless you were using it for certain purposes. And so
15: I entered into the thing thinking I would be a pastor in five years once this thing ran its course.
16: But I was in a place where I was like, I didn't want to be stuck in the Christian music world. And so I was kicking and screaming the whole way through I was just so conflicted, honestly. Hmm. I think we were super conflicted. I think we did want to be in the normal marketplace, but we found ourselves kind of swept into this river of Christendom. And as I say nowadays, it's kind of like, I know this, well it's like the hotel california <laughs> once <laughs> no, once you're is. in you're never coming out and yeah, so yeah. and i felt pretty angry about that for a while i guess i'm right. yeah. angry about it okay. i
0: mean i yeah that's why you played such great rock and roll that's right that's exactly right
16: <laughs> i will say for a season i felt sad by the fact it is hard to go from making seeing people pay money for your material to going to not seeing them. <laughs> like its I always say, if you made vacuums and people stopped paying for your vacuums, you'd be pretty bummed too. There's a little part of me that feels sad about that because it's not a vacuum, it's a little piece of me that I'm putting out there that people used to value enough to spend money on. I now, I, I have changed kind of my mentality about it and realized, or I could just go ahead and do whatever it takes to make a living and do that sort of on the side I know that sounds weird because we are making a living making music but we are doing a lot of other things we're like,
15: not making a living on Waterdeep though we're
16: not yeah. we're not we're making a living doing other kinds of writing and right. other kinds of um, there's a freedom that comes with that because then you can just make the music without worrying about it too much you just do your thing
0: One of the things we talked about with Waterdeep was Lori's work as a producer, and that is something we will continue to explore on the show. We've talked to a couple of other producers so far, in addition to Charlie Peacock and Buddy Miller, of course, including the guy who took home the Grammy Award, the ACM Award, and the CMA Award for his work on Casey Musgrave's Golden Hour album. Ian Fitchuk was my first COVID interview, actually. We both live in East Nashville and often bump into each other in the neighborhood. But in those first few weeks last spring, when everything was shutting down and we were all quarantined, Ian and I connected online from a few blocks apart.
17: I would just love to be challenged by the things that I'm listening to. I think maybe uh, it's about getting outside of yourself and not seeing, not seeing or looking for or where do I fit into this. but just what is this that I'm hearing. The, like, I think that a lot of times it's easy, we tend to say like, how does this relate to me? But I think that if you can get rid of that and say, what is this and let's examine it, um, then it opens your mind up to another part of yourself that you didn't realize that you had. Like, um, there's probably a better way to articulate that. But like, I, I'm thinking of the Fiona Apple record Oh, it's fantastic. But there's not a lot for me to relate to. Like, I don't, I, lyrically, and there's a lot of jarring elements, but uh, instead of being like, oh, that's very different, and it's very obtuse, and I don't necessarily know what she's talking about, I haven't had that experience, instead of kind of, like, building that wall, leaning in, and, and actually spending more of a moment to say, what do I have to learn from this, and how can this change the way that I look at things?
0: Do you find now uh, that you're this deep into your path, that your faith, your your spirituality is speaking into your work in new ways?
17: Oh yeah, I mean, I'm feeling like I'm learning to be more honest with myself and
0: um, I'll leave it at that. What would you love to hear Coming from the next generation of young artists, lyrically, musically, what are some things that would get you excited as a producer, as an artist, as a collaborator? What do you want to hear?
17: Joy, optimism. I always want to hear joy and I always receive optimism.
0: And it's hard to write about those things. What are some of the goals that you set to keep things interesting for yourself?
17: Wow I mean I, feel, I I just feel like I don't know anything honestly I I feel like I'm just at the beginning and this quarantine has really uh, highlighted that because I'm such a collaborator that like I'm so used to leaning on engineers, other producers, other songwriters, editors, like artists, like all these people that I feel like I'm always a part of a, this blob. And now it's reduced to just like what I can do in this little space that I'm in and how well I can file transfer. And it's, it's, um, it's beyond humbling. It's, it's kind of like I have to learn everything all over again. Um, so that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. And I'm trying not to uh, absorb that as a negative feeling, but as an opportunity.
0: producer who had a huge year and no we're not saying that it had anything to do with having kicked it off here with an appearance on our show but we're not not saying that either is tommy prophet although best known for his work as a producer and co-writer with the rapper nf tommy has been blowing up as an artist crafting songs for major film and tv placements we talked with him about his journey how the world of movie music works and he even built a track right before our very ears which you can hear on the full-length episode was music always kind of connected to church somehow with you? Was there kind of a spiritual connection to this stuff from the beginning? Honestly,
18: ironically, it was very cinematic in nature, which I didn't realize at the time, but it was very organic. Piano and strings and, you know, big drums. Like that was just some, something I always just loved. But yeah, I think my parents were awesome my whole life and just supporting me. and you know giving me opportunities and supporting whatever I was into and I know that you know they kept saying you should play in church you know give these talents back to the Lord and I didn't know what that meant like how does if I play during the offertory how is that playing for God like I didn't get it when I was really little but they kinda just kept putting that into my head and I had amazing people surround me through my journey too that just kinda supported me and encouraged me and mentored me really and just learning like using your gifts period is using them for god it doesn't necessarily have to be you know only in one area or another to count as ministry or giving your gifts back to god that he gave you you know what i mean i think just exercising the gifts any anytime you can exercise the gifts that god gives you like that can be an act of worship it doesn't have to only be worship music
0: We've talked about the Electric Jesus film quite a bit this year, actually. Yes, I've served as music supervisor on that movie, so that's part of it. But it was great to have Daniel Smith of Danielson Family fame and the composer for Electric Jesus on for one episode, and then Daniel and the film's writer, director, and producer Chris White on later in the year.
19: I've always loved music. I grew up in a Southern Baptist, you know, evangelical youth subculture in the 80s. So I listened to a lot of Christian rock music growing up. And happily like it wasn't like secular music was banned to me it was like no there's this cool Christian music and so that was kind of a blend of how I came of age musically and started developing taste was in that world there's so few movies where Christians the Christian characters actually act and talk and behave like Christians I knew and experienced and I know there's a lot of people that have been really hurt and abused within the context of church and God and even Jesus which is uh, you know disappointing and very sad I wasn't you know I, I kinda grew and came alive in that world and yes my parents were Christians and they took me and my sister to church and I loved it and I was around people youth ministers and, and Sunday school teachers and other adults you know parents and my friends that just thought it was cool that we did crazy fun things that were creative and so all that was really nurtured and it was a it was just a a lovely kind of charming coming of age for me in that world so when I started thinking about a music movie I was like well I've never seen a movie about Christians that got the voice right and I've certainly never seen a rock and roll movie about Christian rock and so turned turned the dial a little bit farther and got to Christian hair metal uh, you know, Striper being maybe the apex of what we would think of in that, that era. And um, I I got a Striper Greatest Hits album, started listening to it, remembered some of the songs, discovered some other songs, and I'm like, I think, now I think this could be a thing. So that
13: was where we start putting a story with that. Chris and I first met for a podcast interview. And it had nothing to do with the movie at all. It's just at the end of that conversation, he said, someday I have, you know, I have the script I wrote. Someday if I get to make it, we, you know, I'd like you to work with me on it. Uh, and then fast forward probably a year later, year and a half later, uh, we we talk, he says, look, I think I think we're gonna do this. Sent me the script, read the script, I liked it. I didn't know, you know, a lot of the subtleties of the intention of the music, or any of that, we hadn't talked about the music. Right. I think you sent me some demos. Uh, right away, my thought was, let's make these songs great. We can do this in a way that it could. Well, let's let's be as gr- let's really try to do this right. Let's not do it halfway, you know. And let's definitely not have a giant wink with these songs because that's that's so boring.
19: So I wrote the lyrics before there were even songs, and one of the great. Gifts that Daniel gave me in this process was saying, because I was like, I tried to make the words of the song be this thing that would make me as an adult, like if if you found a song, I know you've probably done this, the song you wrote when you were 15, 16 years old, and you just wince, like, oh, God. you know, I don't <laughs> want anybody to ever see this, you know, or hear this song. So I wanted there to be a wince factor, the old person listening to the song, and some of that is funny but i thought of it more like let me put my i want to wrap my head around being 15 being in the church and trying to say something true and profound and then stepping back from that and like ah yeah there's a song called barabbas it's amazing how those lyrics work and with the music the song is written to be a kid trying to use the story of barabbas uh the crucifixion story and give us barabbas and they release barabbas and um and, and, and the song is saying, you could be Barabbas. Like the, the chant in the song is saying to the audience, be Barabbas, you know? But Barabbas was an evil, horrible guy right. that should not have been <laughs>
6: right.
19: released into the world, right. right? And the release of Barabbas is, is a travesty. And. And I was like, well, that would be kind of funny, because if you were a mature adult who understood theology and history, you would be like, well, I don't know if we all want to be Barabbas, <laughs> but I, mean, I love
0: the right, idea of that. Right, I see right. where
13: you're
19: going. Your but-
0: heart is in the right place. Your mind hasn't caught up to your heart. <laughs> and
13: having fun with teenage, uh, this, this how sincere teenagers are. Those lyrics are sincere. That's from the heart. These yeah. these kids, they're not joking. They're they they they're really trying to spread the gospel the best they Can with a teenager's brain, you know, with like, and and they don't, you know, especially these deep theological concepts and stories, and just kind of feeding back what you hear your youth group pastor tell you. But but here's
19: the thing: here's the beautiful thing that happens the first time we actually start listening to the song. In the midst of you know me trying to do all this stuff and we're making the song, I hear the song, and each of the songs, because we're making a movie, I put monologues in the middle, like when the singer's speaking when the monologue starts, and the kid says, um, it is very almost pretentious and swaggery, kind of like, um, what's, it, it says, uh, for, for those of you um, um, imprisoned by the state, or locked up by the shame of your own fate, it's very swag- and he says, let me tell you. very preaching. Yeah, and the first <laughs> time I heard that, I just started crying, because I was like, dadgummit if gospel didn't come out of this song right. it's like the gospel doesn't care the cleverness we're trying to do yeah. or the gospel doesn't care if it's a 15 year old kid trying to say something or the the swagger bravada of some 16 year old trying to all of a sudden this little gospel moment popped up and i said you know what that is true mm-hmm. that is actual beautiful life-changing truth to hear
20: on behalf of those imprisoned by the By the shame of their own fate
13: let me tell you you can be the rabbit, you can be the rabbit, you can be the too you can be the rabbit, you can be the rabbit, you can be the rabbit too you can be the you can be the rabbit you can be the too you can be the rabbit, you can be the you can be the too
0: Another fun moment at our 30-year reunion last summer was when I interviewed rock journalist and indie artist Jeff Elbell, and then he turned the tables and interviewed me. What do you think is the key to effectively writing about music? What can we accomplish when we write about music that can actually do something meaningful for the reader, the listener, and for the artist? What, what's the best we can pull off when we try that?
2: It's, it's hard to make people care when they have so many options for so many things fighting for their attention. So the way uh, that I try to write is try to give details of things that really happen in the room. I sort of take myself out of it. Like When I write, it's not really critique. I don't really criticize music. I describe music. I whistle about chickens, Adrian Blue said, or I dance about architecture, Molin Zappa said. So uh, I, you know, I try to bring in some details, you know, what the guy say, what he do, you know, what, what happened that was funny if Bono fell backwards down the stairs and you know, somebody's going to go, wow, yeah, I wish I'd seen that, which I'd seen Bono fall backwards down the stairs, do a somersault and get up singing, you know, how'd that go down? Uh, but just try to describe the human experience of it and, and, and get some
0: neurons firing. I'm hoping that we can find ways to help kind of mentor and raise up another generation of younger people Mm -hmm. who can write about and discuss, talk about, process music uh, in this way where they're thinking about it in a deeper level uh, because I just think there's more there than uh, this mp3 streaming is great. Streaming has a lot. There's a lot of stuff about it that I think is cool. But it also makes music very disposable and it's background noise that's happening while we're doing other things and uh so it's good sometimes to slow down and listen to stop everything else and and just listen to the record and i think what you're doing with the way you write about music i love when you post it on facebook or wherever you there's another article It's paul mccartney or it's the who or it's i'm like that's jeff and he's writing he's talking to these rock stars and and you you find the thread if it's okay to add a coda hunt to it without dragging it out too much
2: i think it's okay to love it you know i'll be 53 in october i should have outgrown this stuff a long time ago but i haven't so why fight it uh, so I, I, I never approached the writing thing like, well, I'm a musician and I, I didn't make it, and so I'm gonna go tear these other things down. You know, the, you know, the, the, the bitter, frustrated musician angle of things doesn't come into it. It's, uh, yeah, I like to pick it apart and see how it works, but I like to do that because I really love it and I want my art to be better and I want other people to thrive. My perception of the motivation for rebuilding and expanding the True Tunes community is really to make a space so the people can be encouraged or comforted by those kind of stories as much as it is for you know for for you if i'm in your shoes so i want a space where i can tell this kind of story
0: it works from it works from either side i saw a canyon between these great artists and the audience that they could potentially be reaching, it was hard, it was expensive to breach that canyon. Back in the 80s, it was it, you had to have music videos and you had to have coverage in magazines and you had to tour and it was expensive to tour and you had to make records that were really expensive to record. Everything cost a lot of money and the record labels and the distribution mechanism was the only way to do that. When I built True Tunes, the whole idea was to build one bridge over that canyon to help artists to connect with fans and fans to connect with artists. It was that simple. That's like in my manifesto when I was 14 was I want to build a bridge between these things. And when I get the bridge built, the 77s should become the biggest rock band in the world. And you know, all the kids that like ACDC should also like Res band and that kind of stuff. But once I get that bridge built, I want to go over it too. Like I want to make music for those people. I want to go over it as a fan, and I want to go over it as an artist. That was always part of the plan. And it's the same kind of thing now. I'm an author, I'm an artist, I'm a songwriter, Michelle's got music. All of my friends, I have so many friends in Nashville that are making amazing music, and it's so hard to find an audience because everything is (laughs) fragmented. And of course, our Mark Bird episode features one of the most raw, vulnerable, and important conversations I have ever had with an artist. I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the feedback we've gotten on this one. So you had the years doing common children, and I remember when when you transitioned and and you were you were doing the, the God of Wonders thing. What was happening with you that was, first of all, with God of Wonders? Tell me a little bit about the story that got you to that place of that song. Where was that signpost on this journey?
21: Well, uh, Common Children was not working out too well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You were also playing with the choir then, too. Yeah,
21: yeah, Yeah. I was. Um, At that time, I was good friends with Steve Hindelong and Derry. Derry was kind enough to let me stay at Neverland for about three months, sleeping on an air mattress when i had no money you know and so i went home i ended up living i moved from eldorado hot springs arkansas which is a pretty place but it's also you know arkansas so i I went to hot springs and i sat by a lake and i decided to write just kind of like let some things pour out and i'm when i'm in hot springs i kind of get back to my roots you know and so like i kind of got comfortable with uh just writing a, a, a worship type song I guess and when I came back I had three song ideas and, and all three of them ended up on that City on a Hill series but the, the one that began was God of Wonders and then shared that with Steve. Steve had just landed a various artist project called City on a Hill and when we recorded it we thought for sure it was just going to be another song that we offered up to the wind and it was going to blow away and we'd never hear another word about it and so when it hit, I did not know that you got paid to have your song played in churches. I had no idea. Uh, and I felt a little kind of moral weirdness to it because I didn't want the little small churches that I grew up in Arkansas having to pay money to play a worship song. You know, mega churches. Absolutely, charge <laughs> well, the little- them, charge them double, you know.
0: <laughs> but the little churches don't pay very much if they pay anything. I, I know, I know. So, I feel like you told me at the time something about you sitting on the top of your car, looking up into the sky down there in Arkansas when the lyric and the the vibe for that song came. Am I remembering that right?
21: Yeah, but I mean, it was it was more like around a lake and and. Right and all of that came about. And then, then Steve had from the Book of Common Prayer, some imagery also.
0: That song to me compared to a lot of what was happening with worship music has more contemplation going on in it. And especially from you as an artist, it was a different tone. And I wonder if it started turning a page a little bit for you to be a little bit more reflective and a little bit more receptive to the universe and the energy outside kind of more mindful and aware is that do you think that maybe there was Uh, something going on like that
21: definitely i mean there was this definitely for me it was an opening because what i realized is that what i learned during that period of time is that if i'm going to write those types of songs i'm not writing my next big art statement i'm writing a song for a mechanic who works on cars i'm writing a song for uh, a person who might be, might pick up trash. And what did that for me is that I I read some of the parables and I realized that Jesus used all these simple, the simple everyday imagery and he was no spiritual snob about it. In other words, when he was speaking to the masses, he wasn't trying to give a theological dissertation. He was saying, it's like this, Mm. it's like this. And so for me, that period of time, I think that what was different is that when it came to writing worship songs, I had to check my musical snob at the door, and I had to write songs for the folks, for Mm -hmm. the people. Not everybody is called to be a great singer and an artist and can sing a complicated melody. To write something that's good but yet simple and universal is a lot harder than most people think. Exactly. (laughs) And the truth is, is that the songs that have ended up doing well are songs that I think, for me at least, started from a very pure place.
1: Sipping whiskey from a paper cup You drown your sorrows till you can't stand up Take a look at what you've done to yourself Why don't you put the bottle back on the shelf Yellow fingers from your cigarettes your hands are shaking while your body swells. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer.
0: Probably the most talked about episode of the show was episode 17, where we unveiled some long lost interview footage I had with none other than Christian rock pioneer and lightning rod, Larry Norman, and a brand new recording with his son, Mike.
22: As I've gotten older, it's been interesting to... Um, To remember my 20s and early 30s, which is kind of the age he would have been in those times, um, to think about where my mind and my development is now, where his would have been, and the burdens he carried, and the resistance he faced, and the message that he was convicted and compelled to speak. I know his parents didn't always get what he was doing. I don't think anybody necessarily always got what he was doing even if they were sort of on the same page or supportive i i think he uh he challenged even his closest friends
0: do you have any uh advice for people who are trying to find a way to live and find peace living with complicated parents or even legacies of parents parents that have gone on and they're trying to find peace with Uh, somebody that's gone, but they're still with you. They're still, you know, they're still spiritually, emotionally with you.
22: You know, I think there's phases kind of like there's stages of grief. Um, You know, I went through years of being angry at my dad. I went through years of kind of idolizing or worshiping him in my own way. Sometimes all I can remember is the painful moments and other times uh, I'll meet someone like you that will bring me a story or say something, and it'll remind me. Oh, he was that way. He was really funny. He was really charming. Um, I think we all need to give ourselves grace to allow where we're at to be where we're at, to feel no shame for whatever stage that is. Um, I think it's important to find people around you that uh, can let you say what you need to say. Um, you know, so for me, um, I haven't been able to say anything negative. Uh, about my dad. Um, and I still don't publicly because that can always be fuel to further destroy something or that could be posted in some fan page or I you know that, that's what's so sad about this. So finding uh, you know private, safe, healthy relationships with people that are not connected to your lineage um, and, and don't care. They have no stake in the (laughs) game. Um, Those are the people you want to go to where you can actually say, yeah, my dad was famous, but um, he hurt more than any other person in the world. And yeah, my dad was famous. And I know that he loved me um, passionately, but sometimes I can't remember that because uh, there's so many years when he was sick or something that happened when I was really young. And so I forget and uh, I need to be reminded. So, yeah, I just, it's, I think it's just about grace for yourself um, and finding People right. that you can safely share that with.
20: Darkness can't hide much longer. The spirit is getting stronger. You keep the dance halls humming, but the end of the age is coming. I the world to find the
0: truth. And here's a little bit more from my conversation with Larry back in 2000.
20: I never felt that I was representing a large number of of people. I felt that I would only have a minor reception. Uh, I'd already experienced rejection from the church. I'd already experienced uh, arguing with my father. My first reviews, for instance, with, with Capital, were very negative. People were going to the lowest extremes to attack the music, calling my songs about God hubris. And it was just a way for them to dig at me. The uh, general response from the secular media was instant dislike and uh, disdain and uh, attack. It, which I fully expected. The Bible says if you talk about Jesus, people won't like like it. They won't want to hear it. So that's why I only expected a minor reception and, and a lot of attack, a lot of controversy, a lot of negativity. So uh, it it didn't phase me at all. So I wasn't affected by negative input and I wasn't affected by positive input. You know, the Bible says, beware when all men speak well of you. So as the 70s rolled on and more and more kids said, oh, Larry, you know, I love your music. I just thought, well, you know, what you think of me is not important. What God thinks of me is. I'm trying to please him. So I, I wouldn't say this out loud, but I would just think you're young. You know, let's see, <laughs> let's see what you feel in a few years. Are you even still a Christian, you know, a few years from now? So if somebody asked me how many people became a Christian at your concerts uh, tonight or something, I would have to say, ask me in 20 years about these people. Right. So I felt that the, the, the Bible says that many are called, but few are chosen. Few find their way. The road to heaven, the gate, is straight and narrow, and and few there are who find it. So, uh, I never was looking for success, I was never seeking popularity, and I was never disappointed by controversy or rejection.
0: We're still formulating plans for the future, including a conversation with Terry Taylor and music from his long-awaited all-new solo album. But we do have a new interview with artist Kevin Max that you will be hearing in an upcoming episode, and we're gonna give you a sneak peek at that right here.
1: I'm coming out like a 45, spinning like a Whirlitter on overdrive, feeling like glide a touchdown satellite, Feel
0: right tonight. Of love. I work a lot with students, young artists, people that are just getting started. Now, they don't have all that baggage of industry. There is no industry to support them. They're completely in the Wild West on their own. Dodge City. What kind of guidance do you have from your, from your vista looking out at young artists who are trying to find enough people to pay attention to what they're doing, that they could maybe stitch together some kind of a, a living doing this. What, what advice do you have?
1: I always tell people just, you know, um, number one, the, the big thing is, is to, you know, really find out what you love, really find out what you like about music, because it's, it's, it's harder in my opinion to create when you're, you're not really sure about who you are. And I feel like it takes a while to get there. It's a journey. So it's, I also tell people you're not going to nail it on the first try. And it's going to take a few, you know, it's going to take a few projects probably until you really know what you want to do. I mean, there there are those innately um, talented people that can just kind of set up to a desk or a piano or a guitar and just create you know a a monumental piece of art right right off the bat but it's it's extremely rare so you know i'm all about you know writing as much as you possibly can you know i I hate to say quantity helps but you know my first solo album i went and wrote like 30 40 songs you know and we only used 12 but um you know out of those 40 tunes i had a lot better of of a chance at creating something that had some sustainability And then, of course, the be yourself thing is a big deal. I wrote a song about that one time because I I really believe in the power of individuality and independence. You know, it's like you really have to be not worried about what anybody else thinks and and trying to be the shadow of someone else. But, you know, really embracing who you are
0: is important. So that's just a little bit of what we've been up to over the last 18 months or so. Joining us on this journey has been our sponsor, visiontrust.org. We are proud to come alongside Vision Trust and the local heroes they support in 12 countries around the world to reach, equip, and transform the lives of children in need. Most of these beautiful people have been especially hard hit by the pandemic and corresponding economic shutdowns, and Vision Trust is committed to meeting their immediate and long-term needs in comprehensive and holistic ways. You can change everything for one child and be changed in the process For just $40 a month, find the link at the homepage or the show notes page at truetunes.com or drop me a line if you want more information. We sponsor a young boy in Peru and Lord willing, we hope to go on a trip to see him and do some work in his town next year. Maybe you'd like to come with us. Please, if you are able, sponsor a child today. All of the info is at visiontrust.org slash truetunes or again, you can find the link at truetunes.com. And if you do sponsor a child, please drop me an email at Music at gmail.com and let me know. Thanks. I'm not going to spend much time up here on the soapbox, but I would like to reflect a bit on some things I have realized more as I listen back to these conversations than I did when we started this whole thing. The word that is coming to mind is posture. The posture we maintain has an enormous impact on us and it is an impact we may barely even perceive in real time. Our posture informs others of our intentions and influences the way we receive and process messages from others. We are in our bodies after all, which is something Michael Gunger helped remind me of. When I enter into a conversation, am I open and receiving, or am I closed and defensive? If I am the one giving information, am I confident, graceful, patient, or am I a bully, or insecure, or nervous? Reducing ourselves to avatars on computers and our conversations to short bursts of text disembodies us. It becomes incredibly difficult, maybe even impossible, for us to learn anything in that format. The posture just isn't right. We're all leaning back, casually, carelessly scrolling, and leaning forward, defensively, aggressively, protecting our positions at the same time. Longer, more relaxed, face-to-face conversations defy our modern sensibilities. They push our attention spans. But if we can rise to the occasion, they offer great rewards. It's only with extended time that we can push into the important places and allow our spiritual and physical posture to align with our intentions. I want to listen with the intent to learn, not simply to allow your time to expire so I can get to what I want to say. I want to assume the position of the student when that is appropriate, and the teacher when that is appropriate, and not to worry about defending anything. This podcast, I sincerely hope, is just getting started along this path. We found a room, invited some people into it, warmed up the record player, dropped the needle onto the wax, and are waiting together to hear something warm and good come through the old speakers. Then we'll talk, or dance, or cry, or whatever seems appropriate. Sound good? 1 Corinthians 13, that fantastic love chapter that spells out just how amazing and impossible love is, leaves us with a litany of challenges. Of course we remember the laundry list of what love does and does not do. Love is patient, kind, etc. and so forth. It never fails. Great. Good news, though. This means that the love Paul is talking about doesn't come from somewhere inside us. It comes from somewhere deeper and beyond. But I'm thinking about the end where Paul reminds us that when we were children, we acted like children, but when we grow up, hopefully, we put immature ways behind us. We can't see anything clearly now, but someday we will. So as we endure this process of having our eyes cleaned and our bones stretched and our hearts expanded, let's do it with some humility, some excitement, and some grace, and let's do it together. This show has been, and will continue to be, about listening to better music and listening to music better, which ultimately is all about discernment, and that is a skill we learn. So we start by listening to others with the intention of learning from them. If we do this right, I think we might all feel our shoulders loosen up a little bit, and our foreheads relax, our twitter fingers stop twitching, and maybe a deep breath fill our lungs. I had some ideas when we started this conversation but then I started to hear things. I'm learning to slow down a little bit. I'm trying to find that balance between expectation and openness, and I'm sure glad to have you with me. It might only be through a virtual connection right now, but I pray, as I'm sure we all do, that these meetings will soon be face-to-face. That's going to do it for this special edition of the true tunes podcast if you dig what we are doing please tell people this show would make a great introduction so post it email it tweet it and if you have someone in mind that should really be a part of this conversation call them up and tell them about it As always, I want to thank my co-conspirator and producer, Bruce A. Brown, and a big thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song since episode one, the special instrumental mix of Full Circle from their album, Illumination. You can find a detailed list of all of the music used in this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com. As always, the contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use. Use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at True Tunes Music at gmail.com or PO Box 60401 nashville tennessee 37206 please sign up for our mailing list at truetunes.com leave reviews and ratings on your favorite podcast platforms especially apple and check out our brand new patreon program for ways you can help this program and get access to additional episodes and much more and don't forget to tell your friends and family about the true Tunes podcast thank you so much until next time this is jjt saying stay tuned and stay true
1: representatives of Christian youth across our nation. We are here at this time because it is a significant time. What the Greeks of old would have called kairos.